Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Now, please welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. Let's step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? How is everything down in Central Florida? It's good, man. It's really good. I'm healthy. All the people around me are healthy. Uh, I'm really feeling good. Then uh, got my horse all saddled up. We got a good one today, uh, Dave. This one, this one, I think uh, it's got a lot of history in it, and uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into it, my man. That sounds awesome. I'm I'm looking forward to that as well. And before we do, tnstud.com is where you start your Christmas shopping for the ultimate wrestling fan on your list. Autograph photos of the stud, t-shirts in black and blue, autograph copies of Ron's new novel, Brutus, which is available on amazon.com and at tnstud.com, an incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews from the continental and southeastern wrestling days. It is absolutely awesome. tnstud.com is the stud's home on the World Wide Web. All right, Ryan, we are ready to ride. Where are we headed today? Well, we're going to take off on a really good ride today, uh, beginning with today's training. Uh, we're going to put on those owner hats, and we're going to discuss my sale of Southeastern in 1979 after the Knoxville War, right at the end of the Knoxville War, which is almost exactly 41 years ago from today. So, uh, well, and I'm preparing uh, for the first ever Southeastern Thanksgiving event next episode. We've never had uh, matches on Thanksgiving, No, never been in. Maybe in the history of Knoxville, I'm not sure about that, but I know Southeastern, this is going to be their first ever Thanksgiving night match. Uh, but today we're going to focus on the great Knoxville card, November 19, 1976. On that card, I'm going to be returning to action, finally, after the Terry Funk and uh, Ronnie Garvin uh, beatdown that I got. And I'm going to be returning against Big Bad John in the first of three Cadillac tournament matches that night. And we'll be talking about that Cadillac. We'll be talking about how the tournament works, the number of entrants, the date of the finals for the new car. We're going to really cover a lot of ground today. We're also going to discuss the big TV championship match on this TV, the one that we're talking about today between the champion, TV champion Big Bad John and myself. There's also some more of those great original audios from the Hills Brothers in Knoxville, from this TV, this actual TV show, around that championship match that we just talked about. Then we're going to talk about the results of the great Friday night card. Tanaka is going to be taking on Ronnie Garvin in a Southeastern title match. Three Cadillac matches on that card, and the card opens up with a tag match, of all things. <laughs> so we're going to finish up with another super learning tree question from a gentleman named Kyle Gorman. And Kyle asks, as part of the National Wrestling Alliance and developing your business, first with Southeastern and later along the Gulf Coast, how did you go about building relationships with other promoters? Then he's got a second question. Would there be of offers of talent by you if some of your wrestlers were worn out or just didn't fit your needs? So good question. Looking forward to that one, too. Good stuff. All right. Sounds like we're fully loaded again this week, Ron. 
All right. I saw a post on social media that you're going to be talking about in today's training. I can't wait to hear about this one. Yeah. So let's ride, Dave. I'm ready to go, man. So in today's training, uh, it comes from something I saw last week on social media that concerned me. It was about me, basically. It didn't concern me. It was about me. It was the fact that almost exactly 41 years ago to the day, as the owner of Southeastern Wrestling, I sold the company to Jim Barnett and Fred Ward, the two major entities of Georgia Championship Wrestling. The story continued with the results of that sale, the next sale of Knoxville about a year after that, and a sad ending of big-time wrestling in that part of America for years afterward. Mm. I'm sure fans around the world were asking themselves, why and how could all this happen so quickly to a territory that was on fire? Uh, We're going to find out some answers in today's training as we put on our owner's hats. Okay, Ryan, this is true wrestling history for every fan. It is just what these today's trainings are all about. So let's ride. Okay, Dave. So speaking of riding, you know, we've been riding our way through the growth of Southeastern wrestling for almost two years now, from basically October 1974 when I got there to November of 1976. So considering what was happening in the fall of 1976, so much was going on. Uh, we had a record Coliseum crowd in October. We had the addition of some of the greatest wrestlers in the world at this point. Uh, we had tremendous growth in attendance, not only in Knoxville, but all around the surrounding cities, which we talked a little bit about last episode. Uh, we had a fantastic explosion in TV ratings, yeah. amazing growth there. And uh, there was a sudden and dramatic interest in wrestling that had never been in that part of the country before. So why would I sell in just three short years from the fall of 1976? That's what we're going to find out today in today's training. We're going to find out from the one person who really knows the answer to all these questions, me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess you would. (laughs) So we're going to begin in the fall of 1976. And uh, up to 1979, Southeastern was literally a rocket ship on its way to becoming the best small territory in the history of professional wrestling. We were the talk of the National Wrestling Alliance and the wrestling world. I was invited to speak at the annual meetings in Las Vegas every year, beginning in 1976, again in 1977, again in 1978, about what I was doing to build my territory. Uh, Guys just could not believe how fast we were growing. In 1978, the same time as Southeastern Knoxville was proving itself to be a huge success, I was opening my second territory. It was located in Pensacola, Florida, and I would have partners in this territory venture. I'm not going to be the sole partner. But however, you know, as a sole owner of Knoxville and a majority owner of Pensacola, I was about to make my first mistake. I could not be in two territories at one time And I'm going to find out that you can't build two territories unless you really have the right program and the right ideas and the right people in the right place. Interesting. I want to, I want to ask you if I can stop you just for one second, Ron, did you have to file a report? Did the national wrestling, did you report to the national wrestling Alliance as to how what your attendance was, the kind of money that you made on a weekly basis, because you owned your territory and your company, but did, did you have to report to those guys? No, you didn't. Uh, I don't think any territories really reported, but uh, wrestling was like, there was a lot of talk uh, that went on in the wrestling business uh, between wrestlers, uh, between promoters. So this uh, was. Everybody knew what everybody was doing. So know? this was word of mouth that was word really getting mouth. out about how hot your, your territory was. Word of mouth was the big thing. And, uh, Everybody talked. Everybody seemed to know figures. They seemed to know numbers. The wrestlers in my territory were probably on the phone after big houses talking to wrestlers in other parts of the country. Those wrestlers went and talked to the promoters, said, geez, you know what they're doing up in Knoxville? That Southeastern is going crazy. And that's kind of what what happened. Those boys are making big money up there. Yeah, Yeah. that's what the boys, wrestlers want to talk about that. Yeah. They don't want to call somebody up and say, man, I'm starving here. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they want to call and brag. They want right, to call right. and say, wow, you know what I made last week? 
Right. That's what was happening, man. Those kind of really good things were, that word was really going around. That's cool. Yeah. So I chose to go to the former Gulf Coast Wrestling Territory. We had purchased, uh, you know, now I got two territories in 1978. So I I decided that I needed to go to the Gulf Coast Territory because basically that territory was dead in 1978. It was much worse than Knoxville was when I arrived in Knoxville. I took many stars from Knoxville with me when I went down there. Bob Armstrong went with me. Eddie Sullivan. David Schultz went with me. Eddie Mansfield. Uh, I had a great new assassin tag team of Roger Smith and Randy Colley, managed by Billy Spears, who was a tremendous little manager. I took Charlie Cook. I took Mike Stallings. I took my cousin, Roy Lee Welch one of the part owners of the Southeastern down there. I took uh, Ricky Gibson, and along with Ricky waiting down there was his brother, Robert Gibson, who's mm-hmm. going to become part of the future of rock and roll. He's going to become famous. He's yeah. one of the greatest tag teams of all time. So I went down there as a heel, just as I had started in Knoxville, and uh, I had the greatest baby face with me, probably one of the best of all time, Bob Armstrong. And uh, he's going to become my major opponent, my regular opponent down there when we get that territory kicked off. It's going to be the beginning of a 10-year feud between Bob Armstrong and I that sold out everywhere we ever went. It was pretty amazing. So I left my brother Robert as the Knoxville booker, and I left him with an outstanding crew. He added to his crew the great Malenko out of Florida, Dean Ho out of Hawaii, Kevin Sullivan, Bob Rue, Mr. Fuji, and others. So what happened? I mean, the fans got to be saying when they looked at this post on social media, what happened? I mean, gosh, they were doing so good, and all of a sudden he's going to sell. So Bob Armstrong and I set the Pensacola Territory on fire in that first six months of 1978. Things were doing great in Knoxville at the same time. Uh, Then I made my second mistake. In the fall of 1978, my brother was needed by my father and Jerry Jarrett in the Memphis Territory on the far side of Memphis. They had been doing great. They really ran into some type of problem in which their houses were falling off dramatically. They were basically in financial trouble. My dad told me the honest truth about it. And uh, they were beginning to have a war with Nick Goulas who was uh, out of the Nashville office, and he was trying to get his hands on Memphis as well. So they asked me if I could make Rob their booker, if I would basically give them my brother to book for him, for those guys, you know, and they really needed the help. So I agreed to help them in any way I could. And uh, when Rob left, I agreed. uh, They asked me, you know, Rob, they said, you know, Rob's going to be our booker, but you got so much great talent, Ron. Can he bring some of your talent over here, too, to really get us kicked off? So, you know, it's my, my dad, you know, and I was more than happy to try to help him. So I let Rob leave in the latter part of 1978, fall of 1978. He took with him to Memphis, the Mongolian Stomper, Tor Tanaka, wow. Mr. Fuji, Tony Charles. I mean, he took a plethora of tremendous talent with him when he left. So I'd planned for this, buying this second territory, and I'd planned to load up on talent before I opened it up down there, southeastern Pensacola deal, and I had done just that. But I didn't plan to give up superstars to another territory at the same time. I didn't have that kind of talent on hand. So, you know, I was kind of between a rock and a hard place when my dad said, I need some help. What can you do for me? So it left me then when Rob left and he took those four or five major guys with him, it left me a little weaker in Knoxville than I had planned to be. So in addition, some very loyal wrestlers left in that deal to to help out my father's business. Stomper was one of those guys. Uh, So was Tanaka, who had been with me now for years at this point. Tony Charles, a tremendous guy, tremendous wrestler, and they were very loyal. They had been with me for years. So now they're off to Memphis, and I'm left in Knoxville without a booker and short some really key guys for my business. So those loyal guys that left with Rob, 
they could have made a difference in this war that's going to happen by being a part of the Knoxville crew and uh, not allowing what was to come to happen. So then I made another critical mistake, maybe the biggest ever I made in wrestling period. I needed a Knoxville booker with Rob Levin. I hired Bob Roop as my Knoxville booker. And I had known Bob Roop for many years since I first went to Florida in the fall of 1970. I'd heard he was a successful booker for Roy Shires in San Francisco a couple of years earlier, but I didn't hear the bad news. And that was that he got fired because he was trying to steal Roy Shires' territory. I had no idea that that was the type of guy he had become. So after Rob left and throughout the early part of 1979, Bob Roop, he was basically going to corrupt some of my Knoxville crew as he was trying to do the same thing he tried to do in San Francisco. He mm-hmm. tried to take Roy Shire's territory. Now he's got his eyes on mine. And if my loyal superstars and my brother, who were now in Memphis, had they still been in that Knoxville crew, the Knoxville war would have never happened. It would have mm-hmm. never been a Knoxville war because my brother, a very trusting soul, obviously, I mean, he's my brother, and all these other loyal guys, even if with Bob Roop as the booker, he could not have got control of the crew if he'd had Stomper there and if I had Tanaka there and if I'd had Tony Charles there and those guys that were so loyal to me, they would have stopped it. They oh, would have okay. put a stop to it quick. Like, How so, old was Rob at that time? Rob was, uh, at, uh, this was 1978. He was 29 years old. Had he been booking alongside you? Had you been training him in booking or did it just come naturally for Rob? Yeah. Yeah. Rob had been, Rob had been there uh, quite a bit of the time, uh, because sometimes I wanted to take off and I needed somebody to run that part of the company when I did. And Rob, uh, Rob was a great booker. He'd already figured out how to do it. And uh, I knew he was going to go to Memphis and light it up for him. And they did. He did go to Memphis. He took those wrestlers with him. And they destroyed Nick Goulas in a matter of months. But they stayed there long into the war. And that really affected what was going to happen. Did Rob and you sort of think alike? Yeah. And uh, talent-wise, too. We had the same idea of who, who could get it done, who couldn't. And we both had great ideas. Sometimes uh, a lot of ideas came from him. Lots of times uh, I was throwing in mine as well. But uh, yeah, we worked pretty well together as a team because we've got two territories. It made sense. I'm going to Pensacola. He's going to stay in Knoxville. And then we'd had no control. They wouldn't have lost control of Knoxville. But him going to Memphis, it just changed the scenario of everything. And it's where the wrestling war in Knoxville came from. So at this point, I was star owner, you know, I, I was now a star and an owner in, in two territories. I was a heel in Pensacola. I went down there as a heel and a baby face when I came to Knoxville. So I was constantly flying back and forth during those days between the two territories, trying my best to keep both of those territories healthy. Uh, my mistake was not paying enough attention to, to my Knoxville booker. I, I wasn't spending a lot of time with Bob Roop. I only saw him on nights when I was in the towns and we were busy, didn't have much time to talk to him. So my Knoxville booker basically was a rotten apple and I tossed the apple, the rotten apple into the barrel. You know what they say about that? Mm -hmm. One one rotten apple is going to make them all pretty rotten and some of them got rotten pretty soon. So in May of 1979, Bob Roop and four of the wrestlers in Knoxville made their move to take over wrestling there. Uh, the Knoxville War officially began May of 1979. Over the next eight months, all the work I, that I and hundreds of other great wrestlers that had come through Southeastern in that five years that uh, was destroyed. Basically, Southeastern Knoxville, that company was destroyed in a month period of time. And we're not going to get into the particulars of how that happened at this time. And and for those of you out there that really want to know the the all of the scoop, uh, we don't have enough time to deal with it today. But if you want to know more about that, you can find everything in two of my super stud casts that focus on that devastating time period. Number thirteen, the Knoxville Wrestling War of nineteen seventy nine, or yeah. you can uh, check out number eighteen, Ronnie Garvin. 
and Fist of Stones episode, and uh, Garvin admits he made a he made a big mistake by getting involved with Bob Roop, and so you know they fully explained the demise of southeastern Knoxville and why I wanted to sell out. So now let's go back to the original post about the sale of Southeastern in November of 1979 to Jim Barnett and Fred Ward and the ultimate result of that sale. Immediately following the sale, I left Knoxville, moved to Pensacola. Jim Barnett took over control of Knoxville and the surrounding cities where I'd been operating. He kept much of what I had done and who I had employed. Les Thatcher stayed as his television commentator. Mac, my, my my head referee, stayed as top referee there. Uh, Phil Rainey stayed there as the house show and the TV announcer. And along with a whole lot of the crew uh, that was there with me at the end. So I did take two of my best friends with me on down to um, Pensacola and that south end down there around Dothan. And that was the Mongolian Stomper and Don Carson. So Bob Roop. And the only two left out of the original five that started this war ended up with five guys. It was Bob Roop. It was uh, the great Malenko. It was Bob Orton Jr. It was Ronnie Garvin and Ron Wright were the five guys. So uh, about the time in uh, 1979, when I sold out, they shut down too. Their operation was done as well. The war was over, basically. Its devastation, though, wasn't quite realized at that point. So Jim Barnett, now he was a hugely successful promoter all over the world, but he couldn't heal the wounds of the war, nor the loss of the stars that had built the greatest small territory ever. He brought in great talent from his Georgia Championship Wrestling Company that aired on Ted Turner's Superstation WTBS. Mm -hmm. He tried everything for the next year to rebuild Knoxville. He failed so badly that his crowds became so small that he could no longer run in the Coliseum like I was running. He had to return his wrestling to Chihuahua Park. Jim Barnett had tremendous ego. When all this went down for him, he wanted out. So he sold what was left of Southeastern Wrestling to Ric Flair and Black Jack Mulligan in the fall of 1980. This post talked about that. So Mulligan moved to Knoxville. He had been a performer and a great star in Mid-Atlantic for the Crockett's. He moved over to Knoxville, and he did his best to get it going again with some, some of his own talent. And he had some guys that he got some help from the Crockett's from Mid-Atlantic Territory. In the summer of 1980, the only time that he ever asked me for help, he, he brought me, the Mongolian Stomper, and uh, the Stomper's manager, Don Carson, in to wrestle at the outside amphitheater in Chilhowee Park, summer of 1980. It was the largest crowd. I had many people that night to say, Ron, this is the biggest crowd we have seen here since you left Knoxville two years ago. So, you know, I did. I guess, uh, you know, it, it told me a lot that we were still big stars there and they were having a hard time getting over. So Mulligan and Flair walked away from Knoxville and their debt to Jim Barnett in the fall of 1981. Knoxville Wrestling and the former Southeastern Wrestling officially died, I would say, in 1981. For the next four years, companies came and went. They, they came to uh, different places, went into Knoxville, tried to run shows with no success, none of them. Knoxville was one of the greatest success stories in wrestling history. It became a ghost town for the sport almost overnight. So southeastern Pensacola had done just the opposite during these years. In 1980, we purchased another great city, wrestling city that had died, Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, all of northern Alabama with it. We bought it from Nick Goulas, who was getting out of wrestling. He was retiring. By 1981, northern Alabama was on fire again. It was dead, and uh, we just lit it up again. In 1981... We began to operate Tallahassee, Florida, with the Florida Championship uh, Wrestling. Uh, they owned that city. They had, in fact, owned the building in that city. But they had fallen on hard times, and they weren't able to draw the crowds they used to draw. Uh, so we had a partnership to run that thing 50-50 with them, and we started bringing Tallahassee back. Crowds began to grow again in Tallahassee. So southeastern Pensacola was just like 
southeastern Knoxville, we had a seven-year growth spurt in Pensacola from 1978 way on into the 80s. And uh, we did exactly what Knoxville did in the 1970s. In this time frame, we're talking about 76, 77, 78. You know, in 1985, southeastern Pensacola, which was now at that point Continental Wrestling, returned to Knoxville. It was the first time in six years since 1979 that a wrestling event was held in the Knoxville Coliseum. We called that event. Uh, when we went up there, I told uh, everybody, I said, boys, we're all going home. You know, it's like a homecoming. So we called that event the Tennessee Homecoming. And the following stars triumphantly returned to Knoxville on that show. Bob Armstrong and his son, Brad. It was the first time those people up there had ever seen Brad. Ron and Rob, both of us Fuller boys. Jimmy Golden went back. The Mongolian Stomper went home. Don Carson went back. Tony Charles went back. Roy Lee Welch went back. Jerry Stubbs went back. David Schultz went back. Uh, We not only drew a large crowd, we do a total sellout in the Coliseum that first night we went back. The Southeastern had officially returned. (laughs) Basically, we for darn sure officially returned. And so had Big Time Wrestling returned to Knoxville. Knoxville was back on the wrestling map again. That is pretty awesome. And another educational today's training. As I can remember, Ron, Southeastern's history is really amazing. It was born in 1974, died in 1981, and reborn in 85. So, all right, where to next, Dud? We're going to go to Chilhowee Park. We're going to go on Friday night, November 19th, 1976. Uh, And this uh, this one is just six days before the first ever Southeastern Thanksgiving night match, which is going to be in next week's episode. This Friday night card opened with a very unusual first match tag. Uh, You know, you just didn't see tag matches opening up shows. Uh, This was a really good tag match, too. It was Rip Smith and Don Carnoodle, two upcoming stars. And they were wrestling against Kurt Von Steiger and the, that new gladiator, Jim Dalton, the heel gladiator that people were trying to figure out what's this guy all about. Second match was the first of three Cadillac tournament matches that night. It was the first night of the Cadillac tournament. And I'm going to give everybody a brief breakdown uh, in a few minutes to, about what this Cadillac tournament was all about. Jimmy Golden, he wrestled that night in the Cadillac tournament match against the great Mephisto. The next match was another Cadillac tournament match. Mike Stallings wrestled against Carl Von Steiger. There was a third Cadillac match that night, and that was Big Bad John against me. The main event was the Southeastern Championship. Champion Ronnie Garvin, managed by Big Bad John, faced off against the Japanese monster himself, Toru Tanaka. Man, that's a pretty great card right there. All right, so before you get into the TV show that promoted this particular night, you said you were going to give us some info on the Cadillac tournament. What's up with that? Yeah, Dave, uh, this was a very big thing for Southeastern fans at this point, even though they didn't know it. They'd never had a Cadillac tournament. They'd never had any kind of car tournament. They'd never seen anything like this. So we had teased it for several times on TV, what was kind of coming. But the promoter in me, I just had I'd been working on this for a long time, and I knew what I wanted to do. The tournament was going to last for three months. It was going to have tournament matches in Knoxville and some in Johnson City, Tennessee. Johnson City, Tennessee. That's where the only other city that we wrestled on a weekly basis. So the first thing I did was design this huge four by eight foot professionally painted sign. It had the names of all 18 wrestlers that were entered in the tournament. This huge board is going to be displayed at every Knoxville and Johnson City match as well as every TV for the next three months. And each time it's shown, there's going to be weekly updates as to who's won, who's lost, that type of thing. Who's still in the tournament and who's not, basically. Was it set up like tournament bracket? Yeah. Well, no, it's not really in a bracket situation. It was just the names. Then I was able to displace guys one against the other as I wanted to piece it together. Yeah, and uh, okay. so the tournament rules were pretty simple, though. If you lost two times, you were automatically eliminated from the tournament. And on this huge board uh, next to the names, uh, we kept up with the wins and losses. 
the wins were designated by putting a plus sign there. And if it was a, a loss, it was a minus sign. So every Saturday on TV, somewhere during the personality profile, Les would always update that board. And as the tournament progressed, he would cross off those names that had been eliminated after they got the two losses. So what happened here is you got to see that board every week, and fans' interest grew. As the number of names dwindled down smaller and smaller, the fans got more interested in who's going to win this thing, who's going to win this car. Mm. All the tournament matches were a 30-minute time limit, and if you it was a time limit draw, both wrestlers took a loss. So, you know, guys really fought hard in the last five minutes of these matches because they knew they would, the opportunity was all based upon not having one of these draws. Yeah, having to kiss your sister, basically. Right. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. so in addition yeah. to this, the four-door pink Cadillac was brought to every event in which there was a tournament match. It was always placed somewhere inside the building so that the fans could see it, not just see it, but gather around it. It was cordoned off all the time by these steel stanchions that were attached to velvet ropes, and it was always guarded by a policeman. Mm-hmm. So I'd witnessed these Cadillac tournaments since I was 12 years old. My father built many dead territories into tremendous ones that lasted for many, many years just with these Cadillac tournaments. So I knew this tournament was going to start by drawing not a single person in addition to the crowd that was already going to come that night. But I also knew that at the end of this Cadillac tournament, it's going to end with a sellout, no matter how large the building or the stadium is going to be. It's going to have a hard time holding all the people. All right. That's awesome, Ron. I am ready to buy a ticket. Was this your next super event? The next Terry Funk match? (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, And you could be right. I mean, actually it, it's going to be bigger than the Terry Funk match. And the car was a beautiful thing. Gosh, almighty man, a four-door pink Cadillac. Oh, it was gorgeous, you know. And uh, every time uh, that it was taken in, in any building, man, it was surrounded by fans. And that's going to happen for months now here. Every time that car is going to go to inside the building in Knoxville, up in Johnson City, Tennessee. How could these fans go and see that car that often and not be there the night when somebody's finally going to win it, right? Right. I mean, it's a concept and a program that just builds itself for the future, and it's always destined to be a huge, huge finals. All right. I think this is a great time for a break. If I know you, Ron, we're going to be coming back with that beautiful car on this next TV show, right? (laughs) Well, you could be right. We're going to find out, Dave. All right. Y'all stay where you are. This stud cast will continue in a moment right here. Super Studcast number 35 is a historical wrestling treasure. Fans from all over America and other countries relish the opportunity to talk with a wrestling legend and ask questions that all fans want to know. Questions just as diverse as the people that ask them. The Studs' answers are pure wrestling history. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast, we'll give you access to wrestling knowledge without limits. The interaction between Ron and the questioners is a show in itself. This Super Studcast is special. A connection between someone that has lived it and those that dream of it. Learn more about the sport than you ever knew in this four-hour interactive dive into wrestling history at tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. The best deal in wrestling. Welcome back. It's another Studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. TNStud.com is where you start your Christmas shopping for the ultimate wrestling fan on your list. Don't forget, autograph photos of the stud right there. T-shirts in black and blue. I have the blue one. I love it. Autograph copies of Ron's new novel, Brutus, an incredible historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews from the Continental and Southeastern Wrestling Days. TNStud.com is the stud's home on the internet just in time for Christmas. All right, so are we doing that TV from Saturday, November 13th, 1976 next, Ron? Yes, sir. You're right on it, man. You got your calendar out again, man. Indeed, I do. You got the right date, you know. (laughs) So this TV, it's got a little bit of everything in it. It's got Cadillacs in it. 
It's got a TV championship match in it. Uh, it's got some of those rare original sound clips, man, from the original show. And uh, it's been quite a while since we had some of those. So Les, Bill Rainey, the television crew, and, and I, we all go early that morning into the television station because we're going to do an extremely unusual personality profile. It, it not only uh, required us to pre-record it, but it had to be shot in the main studio prior to even bringing in the ring and setting it up. So we showed up really early that morning. And the TV crew, the Channel 10 was so good to us. And, and because we were getting them the big numbers, they didn't mind me asking special favors. And they brought in the television crew early. And the, the reason for all that was it was the beginning of the Cadillac tournament. And uh, it's going to start the following Friday night. So we had the color strobe lights, which were on the back of the studio wall, which nobody else was doing around anywhere in wrestling during those studio days. We put some color on our wall back in the background. And, uh, you know, the beautiful Cadillac was polished and shining brightly, man, as we drove it into that main studio. It was parked in the middle, and that giant tournament board was placed uh, upright uh, in front of the car. Room was left for less and the cameras so that they could walk around the car when he was describing it and uh, talking about it and shoot that beautiful Cadillac from all angles. Wow. So when the recording began, after showing the car off, Les and the announcer co-host, uh, Phil Rainey, moved over to the huge tournament board. They read the names of the entrants going down the list. Then they explained the rules for the tournament, the ones that I explained just a few minutes ago. Normal personality profiles back in those days were about five minutes. This personality profile went 10 minutes. But gosh, I thought, man, it was worth every minute of it. The car was just absolutely gorgeous, man, under those bright TV lights. You know, just all polished and, oh, it was fine. A pink four-door Cadillac, it was beautiful. The tournament board was really impressive. The fans were not going to see this live. But they were still going to be blown away when they did. You know, it's going to be pre-recorded. All of a sudden, it's going to show up on the screen and uh, <laughs> on, on the monitors in the studio, and they're going to be wowed by it. I knew those at home were going to feel the same way. And I should have gotten an even better discount from the Cadillac dealer, and I would have <laughs> if I'd have known I was going to do this, right? In 1976, I wanted to add something new on the Cadillac the, the new square headlights. And that really was just brand new, the square headlights, because everything prior to that had been round. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was a fantastic, beautiful car. And uh, like I've told the story, I bought two of them the same day. I bought this one. I bought one for me. Uh, it wasn't pink and it wasn't what four color doors, was it? but, uh, this car just looked absolutely <laughs> awesome in this personality profile. So when it was all over and we got everything done, you know, we pulled the car out and we took it back down to the dealership. That's where we were keeping it. Yeah. Uh, and they were taking really great care of it. And uh, then uh, we wanted to get it out of there before the fans started to arrive to get a lineup to get into the studio. And that was a pretty awesome sight in itself. Fans would start arriving two hours early to try to get in the studio. And it would only hold maybe 150 people. And there would be 300 or 400 in the parking lot. So, you know, we got it all done car was gone they never had any idea what they're going to see from the personality profile the ring was set up after this after we left and the fans had no idea what they were about to see this show was the second in a row television show that started off differently than most of them and because there was going to be a tv championship match scheduled in this show between me and big bad john uh, we decided less and i talked about it Let's put this TV match on first. And I was going to be facing Big Bad John for the TV championship that he had been given by Ronnie Garvin, who won it from the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn, in October. After Ronnie won the TV championship, then uh, once Big Bad John became his manager, he basically just said, here, you're going to be the TV champion. You can have the trophy. So in actuality, Big Bad John hadn't even really won the trophy. And, you know, so it's a, it was pretty strange that he ends up uh, defending it against me. So mm. this was to be John's first title defense. 
The show opened with me in the ring. I was being introduced by Phil Rainey. It was my first match back after the Terry Funk world title match of October 10th when I got hurt. And I got a thunderous round of applause, obviously. Big Bad John was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> so I'm standing in the ring for, it seemed like, three or four or five minutes, and he finally comes into the studio. He's not even dressed to wrestle. He's carrying a huge TV trophy with him. And instead of coming to the ring, he goes to the set with Les, and he bends over to explain to Les how he hurt himself. And he was going to have to forfeit the trophy because he wasn't able to defend it today. Mm. So, <laughs> so you can imagine the studio crowd, uh, you know, and they could hear what he's saying. And, boy, they were more than a little upset with the, the fact that uh, he wasn't even going to wrestle that day. John brought the trophy over to the ring, and he easily handed it over the top rope to the referee. Much too easily for a man who's supposed to be hurt. And Les is pretty sharp. Les picks up that. He goes, well, look, he don't look hurt. <laughs> the trophy weighs 50 or 60 pounds. He's hoisting it around pretty easily. So I made a little move for him, and he backed away from the ring. Bill Rainey announced that Big Bad John was going to forfeit. The crowd booed until the bell rang. Then the ref started the 10 count, and that was the procedure for, for forfeit. And uh, at about the five count, the studio audience, they all got into the five count. The, the count's now seven, eight. You know, at the count of 10, the bell rang. There was a huge celebration by the studio crowd. And the trophy was given to me, obviously. I took it over to the set to Les. And uh, I told him, uh, Les, uh, I don't want to take this trophy. I don't want to win it like this. You know, this. I, I, know, I don't want to win by forfeit. I, I want to earn it. And, you know, then Les reminded me of something, which was pretty cool. He said, uh, do you remember, Ron, how you lost this trophy about a year ago when you had your collarbone dislocated and you had to give it up? He said, uh, you know, don't you think maybe you deserve it, Ron? So, uh, you know, I, I ended up leaving the set with the trophy, you know, and uh, got some big applause and, uh, and a standby match. We always had a match ready in case something happened and somebody got hurt to go in the ring. And the standby match uh, that was standing by, they went in the ring, and we had our first match. It just wasn't the television championship match that we expected to have. After the standby match, then John went to the set, and John demanded that they show how he and Garvin had destroyed Ron Wright the night before. Uh, there was a 20-foot pole match that night for the Southeastern Championship. At the end of that video, the first interview started. Uh, first interview of the show. And uh, we have today, and I'm really proud of this, the actual interview with Big Bad John from 44 years ago. Uh, Les is going to, in this interview, mention the forfeit, and he's going to try to pin Big John down to the fact that he's having to wrestle me in the upcoming Cadillac tournament match the following Friday. Mm -hmm. So uh, fans out there, you're going to be able to hear where Big Bad John wanted to take this conversation. All right, and our man Lou Kippelman, our producer in San Francisco, is going to play that interview for us. Go ahead, Lou. Cadillac tournament matches, you'll be facing Ron Fuller. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Don't worry about Ron Fuller because all you got to worry about right now is Toa Tanaka. Tanaka, let me tell you something. You've been whooped before. You've been beat up before. You've been in street fights. You've been in back alley brawls. You fight with karate. Use Kung Fu, anything that you can get your bald, little, dinky-looking head to use. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Come Friday night. Let me, let me interrupt Come you. Friday. you. I ask you a question. You were supposed to meet Ron Floor here today on television. You did not do that, but you are to face him. Will you like shut up? I don't like to hear Just your shut your mouth. I'd like to hear shut your Shut your mouth. Don't worry about no tournament. I'm talking about Tanaka. Now, Tanaka, Friday night, you're going to meet the man. You're going to meet the man. The beef freak here. Look at him. I'm going to tell you something. you fought and you've been tough before. I've been here. I want you to get down and go for what you know, boy, because he can stand anything you can hit him with. He can stand it. So get it down, boy. Get it for what you know. Okay, Ron, I'm glad we got to hear from Big Bad John himself. Those audio clips are absolutely cool. Who was in the next match for the evening? 
Well, the great Mephistos in the next uh, live match on television, he got himself a quick win, and then he split his interview with his opponent for the next Friday night, uh, Jimmy Golan, who was in Studio B. They were going to be in the first ever Cadillac tournament match on the following Friday night. Uh, the pre-recorded personality profile came next after that. And as soon as the fans in the studio got their first look at that car, they were like crazy. <laughs> they were like, whoa, they were all looking at each other and, oh, wow, what a... It was just beautiful. And for at least half of that 10-minute segment, the studio crowd's reaction just spoke directly to me about what this big Cadillac tournament was going to do for Southeastern, man. I could just feel the enthusiasm in that crowd. It was great. The third TV match of that day was Mike Stallings, and pretty much a rare single match for him. He was bit most of the time paired off with Jimmy Golden. And uh, this was preparation, uh, good preparation, for his first Cadillac tournament match for the next Friday night against Carl Von Steiger. He won using his sleeper hole, and he, he just liked in the, the interview before with Jimmy. Uh, he split the uh, his interview with his German opponent. Uh, the last match on the TV was now the extremely popular Japanese star, Tor Tanaka. And uh, he was going to be going up against Ronnie Garvin the following Friday for the Southeastern Championship. He turned that television studio audience on, man. You would have thought he was Ron Wright. <laughs> People were just, wow, they were into Tanaka. And Tanaka, at this point, he's a huge part of Southeastern wrestling, no doubt about it. So after he destroys his opponent, and that's a pretty good way of putting it, he went to the set with me for the last interview of the show. He broke a block with his forehead. That said all he needed to say. (laughs) He needed to do more than that. You know, it's a lot better than him trying to speak whatever language he screamed out a lot of times. You know, but a boy, when he's breaking those four-inch thick blocks with his head, you know, it was doing some talking. Uh, I ended the interview with a personal challenge to Big Bad John to show up this time like what he had done today. Thanks to the Eels Brothers in Knoxville, we have that original interview for the fans today as well. All right, here we go. Lou's going to play that interview from 44 years ago. Here it is. But you don't want the same man, Big Bad John, is supposed to meet you in Chihuahua Park Friday night in the first of the three Cadillac tournament matches. Let me tell you something, Les. First of all, let me say that I know that in Harlan tonight, and I know he made some really nasty comments about the people up there in Kentucky, and there's some great fans in Kentucky. And I know you're going to be there tonight, and you're in a battle royal, Big Bad John, and I don't think you're so yellow belly. You're going to chicken out on that one. You're going to get in there, but I got news for you. You're going to have a ring full of nasty people looking for your fat belly. Now, come Friday night, Jack, you want to be yellow? You want to show me? You're back again in that scar where they took out the yellow stripe. That's fine. You just show it to me because I'm sure all I'm going to see a big, bad giant is his back because that's you're always running away from somebody, big, bad giant. So you just Friday night come down to the ring, and if you want to stay in the Cadillac tournament, and I know that the rules of this tournament are you've got to have a number of wins to win this car, you better, you better come prepared to wrestle, baby. Because if you lose Friday night, and if you don't wrestle Friday night, you're going to get a loss in the Cadillac tournament. And if you do wrestle Friday night, then that's where the fun really begins. Because you ain't seen Ron Fuller mad, Jack. But you're going to see him mad Friday night, big, bad, John. And I'm going to show you who's big and bad. And his last name ain't John, it's Ron. Wow, Ron, you absolutely cranked that crowd. I don't know how many fans were in the studio, but it sounds like literally hundreds were there. Well, not nearly as many as <laughs> was there as it sounded like, Dave, that's for sure. But, uh, boy, they were, those fans there in Knoxville were really into it. I'll say. All right, so let's give everybody the results of that next Friday night in Knoxville, November 19th, 1976. Well, I want to start this off by saying just how much attention the Cadillac and the tournament board got on that Friday night. You know, the good thing about the Jacobs building at Chihuahua Park was the fact that it had a big area that fans weren't sitting in, and it was perfect for displaying this Cadillac. 
And it was perfect to give the fans the opportunity to fall in love with that car. That's what I wanted them to do. I want them all dream about, man, what it would be like to win something like that. And uh, from where I could see, because we were on the second floor in that building, you could see down into the area where the Cadillac was parked. Uh, man, they were just surrounding it all night. They were all up close and personal with that pink Cadillac. So the first match uh, was the tag match that night, and it was won by Kurt Von Steiger and the new mass gladiator, Jim Dalton, over Rip Smith and Don Canoodle. Second match was that first ever Cadillac match. Jimmy Golden won uh, over the great Mephisto. Third match was another Cadillac match. Mike Stallings and Carl Von Steiger ended up wrestling to one of those 30-minute draws, which means it was counted as a loss for both of them. So Great Mephisto had a loss at this point. Carl Steiger and uh, Mike Stallings had a loss at this point. And uh, obviously, uh, they were only one loss from being out of any chance to win that car. So the next match was the last tournament match of the night, uh, Big Bad John versus me. So I went to the ring first. And again, just like on television, had to wait and wait and wait. You know, and the crowd's getting pretty upset just by the fact that where is he? And when he finally came down the aisle to ringside, he wasn't dressed to wrestle again. <laughs> it was like crazy. You know, he, he refused to get in the ring and he forfeited uh, his first tournament match. So. I'd never seen as much heat as he got from a match that really didn't happen. You know, mm. the fans were not nearly as happy about this one, though, as when he walked away and I got the Southeastern Trophy the Saturday before. But he was booed all the way back to the dressing room. My God, they were mad at him. Man. <laughs> it was like it was exactly what uh, what I was looking for when he came back for the main event with his man, Ronnie Garvin. Fans reminded Big Bad John of how much they hated him, man. As soon as they saw him again, boy, they just started where they left off booing him when he left. The Southeastern Championship was on the line in this match, and toward Tanaka's entrance, it brought the fans back for a celebration, man. They, and they were just really into this match. They were so on the side of that big old Japanese monster. It was amazing, man. They wanted him to win that belt. So obviously, Big Bad John, who hadn't entered the ring all night, had his opportunity to save Ronnie, and all he had to do was jump in the ring, and that's exactly what he did, jumped in the ring on purpose to save Tanaka from winning. Tanaka had the belt won. All John had to do was stick his head in the ropes, and the referee rang the bell and disqualified Garvin, kept Tanaka from winning the title. And uh, Big John even kept Tanaka from making contact with him. As soon as he jumped in the ring and Tanaka made a move for him, he jumped back out on the floor and he ran all the way to the dressing room. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he left Garvin in the ring alone. You know, like, boy, his coward routine was really getting some heat. I'm telling you, people were like, wow, this guy's got no guts at all. It was really amazing. Okay, at some point, you got to explain all that. All right, what was the attendance for this one? So it was uh, just like it had been for every match uh, since the last match in the Coliseum with Terry Funk. It was just about 4,000 again. It was We were just packing that building every week. And I was already regretting the small size of this Jacobs building because the following Thursday night, which was going to be Thanksgiving, we're going to be in this little building again. It's not going to nearly hold the crowd that's going to show up the next Thursday night. All right. Another outstanding Studcast, Ryan. I think it is time to get a cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning tree. Remind us again, what was the question and who was the person that asked them? Well, the learning tree question today came from Kyle Gorman. And, and he asked, as part of the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, in developing your business, first in Southeastern and later along the Gulf Coast, how did you go about building relationships with other promoters? A second question was, would there be offers of talent by you if some wrestlers were worn out or just didn't fit your needs? Mm -hmm. So two great questions. Uh, let's, let's take that first one to begin with. The one about being a member of the NWA. And uh, how do I build a relationship with promoters? So growing up in a wrestling family, 
I met all kinds of promoters from all over the country as a young guy. And uh, starting at seven, eight years old, all the way up to becoming a man. I was almost always in the company when I went to matches of either my father or my grandfather. And uh, both of them were members of the National Wrestling Alliance. So, you know, they knew everybody and everybody knew me and Rob long before we ever got in the ring. My brother and I went to the NWA meetings with my father starting at about age 16 years old. And we couldn't go in the meetings, obviously, but we were party to the lunches and the dinners that my dad and my grandfather had with these other promoters. So, um, you know, at a very early age, uh, we began to open the door to our wrestling future, that's for sure. So as a wrestler, obviously, I began to meet more promoters and really learned to form more meaningful relationships once I got into the NWA. She said, I knew everybody well. Uh, I, NWA president Sam Mutchick out of St. Louis, uh, Jim Barnett in Georgia. Gosh, great friends with my dad. Uh, I had wrestled for him in Australia. I'd wrestled for Sam in St. Louis 40 times, probably. Jerry Jarrett in Memphis and wrestled there for him. Eddie Graham in Florida, where I got my start. Bill Watts in Oklahoma, who was a partner of mine and turned on me in Florida as a young wrestler. They're just a few of uh, the guys that I either wrestled with or for. So it may be hard to believe, but there's very little swapping of talent, even recommendations of talent necessary for most wrestling promoters. I did one time uh, recommend someone to another promoter, and he did the same for me years later. And I think it's the only time I can remember that I ever called somebody and did this. I recommended a young black star that I knew was going to be great uh, to a fellow promoter that was in a part of the country with a huge black population. And he had a great need for this guy. Uh, this guy was the perfect guy for him. This wrestler had come in for me in Knoxville just for me to have a look at, which was pretty much customary. He did that a lot with young guys. He didn't know. So, well, let me put you on the card and take a look at you. That's the way I met this kid. He asked me, can I come in and work and, and take you have a look at me? Even though I didn't have a territory with a large black population, he was a black star. And I was extremely impressed right away. And he had the size, he had the speed, and he had that certain something that I knew was going to make this guy a star. The guy's name was Sylvester Ritter. Oh, I know who that, who that is. Yeah. Many of you listeners out there may not recognize him by that name, but he's going to go on from me in Knoxville to Bill Watts, Mid South Territory. He's going to become the second junkyard dog. He said, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're going to get to the first one here in a minute, but he set wrestling on fire everywhere from Oklahoma to Louisiana. He was the biggest star maybe in the history of Mid-South wrestling. Mm. First junkyard dog, Norvell Austin. He's going to be returning, oddly enough, to Southeastern in March of 1977. Wow. And, uh, and he's not going to come back as Norvell Austin. He's going to be doing his own talking. He's not going to have a manager. And he's going to become the first ever junkyard dog. In fact, that's where Sylvester Ritter got the idea when he goes on to Bill Watts of that name for him. Years later, Bill Watts sent me in return a guy named Buck Robley, who was a huge star for him in Mid-South. Buck helped me greatly in the first years that I was down there in southeastern Pensacola. You know, there were some one-show swaps of talent occasionally between promoters. You know, that was to boost cards. They add a big-name guy here or there to these big events. They would draw a lot more money. Not to add guys to your full-time crew. You just wanted to add a name in here to, to add to the card. And uh, you would swap guys back and forth that way. Uh, Bill Watts and I, we used to do it. We did it with Ernie Ladd and me. I would go and work for Watts against Ernie in some of Watts' territory. And in return, Watts would send Ernie to me. And uh, I would use him in my territory. One of those swaps drew one of the largest crowds in Mobile history. One of the nights I worked with Ernie Ladd in Mobile because wow. he was a big name, big name wrestler. Yeah. So you had to be aware, though, of who you were dealing with when you did these little swaps for just a one night show here and there. 
not everybody had the type of talent that I did or that Watts did. And at times, you could lose a guy by sending him in to work for another promoter who did poor business and, uh, you know, offered him huge money. Why don't you come in and work for me? An unethical promoter. And there were some, I'm not going to mention any names, but there were unethical promoters that uh, soon found out that it wasn't the way to do business, though because they found themselves blackballed for their deeds and unable to work with honest promoters. You know, guys, word got around, just like uh, Southeastern being on fire. You know, word got around when you were an unethical promoter because promoters all talked to each other, too. So you didn't want to have that type of reputation. So uh, let's answer the last question that Mr. Gorman asked. Would there be offers by you if some talent was worn out or just didn't fit your needs? You know, that brings me, Dave, to a side of wrestling that few people out there are probably even aware of. Professional wrestlers were probably the most independent athletes on the planet. They had to be. Uh, they weren't a part of any team, and they were totally responsible for their future. By gosh, you know, they, they couldn't blame anybody if they didn't get booked. They had to get out there and get it done. Most wrestlers always handled their own movement between territories. Uh, they could feel when they needed to look around for another place, uh, either by, you know, hey, all of a sudden they're beating me. <laughs> Instead of me winning a lot of matches, I'm losing a lot of matches. Or they felt something wasn't right between them and their booker, and they'd go talk to somebody, the booker, about it. So, they would start quietly looking for the next territory, and they made some contacts there, usually with some of the wrestlers there, maybe the booker there, sometimes even the owner there. The wrestlers were likely to give bookers their notice as often as they were given their notice by a booker. It was the way the business worked, and everybody knew it in the business. As a booker, you didn't get upset by a surprise notice from a wrestler, nor did wrestlers get upset by one from the booker. It was the way it was done. Professional wrestling, oddly enough, for the most part, it was a gentleman's business, always handled with respect. Those that did it properly were successful. Those that didn't, they didn't look for jobs long if they didn't respect the sport because they were no longer a member of the sport and jobs were no longer there for them. It's pretty simple. That's interesting. All right. I'm, I'm just curious, and I got to ask about the elephant in the room. What made an unethical promoter unethical? What Can you just give us a rough idea? Well, you know, uh, they, they wanted to steal talent for one thing. You know, uh, if you tried to help them and they called you up and said, hey, can I borrow so-and-so? Uh, you know, I'd like to use him one night and help me on this card. And then you said, yes, you sure can. And then uh, the guy comes back and he say, he gives you a notice. He goes, hey, look, I, I'm, I'm going, I'm going over there. <laughs> In two weeks, I'll start over there, and that was just the the tip of the iceberg. I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of guys uh, made promises to other promoters and uh, to uh, mostly wrestlers that they couldn't keep. They knew they weren't going to keep. Unethical promoters, uh, people knew who they were, and uh, you know, you didn't do business with them unless you just had to. If you were doing good business, you never had to. You didn't have to do business with anybody. Yeah, that kind of explains that. Hey, what a great stud cast, Ron. So much history, and this one is, is always another amazing job. All right, on Facebook, Ron has two sites where you can simply like and follow him and become a friend. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and author Ron Fuller Welch for his novel Brutus Information. On Twitter and Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch on both. Super Studcast number 35, the first ever fan interactive Ask the Stud question and answer show is setting records. I bet you got something to say about this one because I know you had at least one call from the land down under. Yeah, pretty amazing, man. Uh, I talked to so many great people, great fans out there around our country. It's it's just a phenomenal, and, and and all of them, every one of them, not only listen to the Studcast, but they listen to the Super Studcast as well. And questions are just, uh, oh, wow, it's like a history lesson, a wrestling history lesson that you couldn't get anywhere. Uh, just answering those questions was really, really good for me. And uh, so many great people, and 
the fellow from Australia, Walksmith, the gentleman named Walksmith. Uh, <laughs> wow. He could remember so many things from my time in Australia and pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, it's it's a, an extremely good. And uh, part two, I think, will be just as good. There's going to be a lady in this one that asks a question. And uh, there's going to be a Canadian, <laughs> someone from Canada in this one. So, you know, this is it's a worldwide program. It's uh, cool. questions from all over, literally all over the world about wrestling. All right. Since you mentioned the land down under, did you ever eat a Vegemite sandwich? <laughs> I never figured out from that song what that was. No, I really don't know what a Vegemite sandwich was, it's, but I know they had some awfully strange food there. You know, <laughs> I was told it's yeast spread on bread. And uh, I only know that because of the, the group called men. I think they were called men at work. And the song called Down Under, and, and he mentions Vegemite Sandwich, and we looked it up long ago, but you spread on bread. So it doesn't sound very appetizing, but anyway, no, there no, you go. But, uh, but they had a lot of good food there, too. <laughs> but uh, they did have some strange things there. And uh, we talk a little bit about that in part one of uh, this Super Stud cast number 35. And uh, I really enjoy I enjoy all the conversation I had with everybody in that program. That's awesome. All right, Ron, tell us about next week. Well, next week, we're going to focus on the first ever Southeastern Thanksgiving night celebration. It's going to be on November 25th, 1976. Uh, I'm going to finally, uh, after my injury, be getting my hands on Ronnie Garvin and a shot at the Southeastern Championship. Uh, This one has a tag match in which the loser, first time maybe ever done, the loser of the tag match has to leave the territory. Tanaka is going to face Big Bad John. There's a Cadillac match on that card and more on that card. Uh, there's also more of those great uh, additional audio clips next week from the television program promoting the, the Thanksgiving card. More than was on this program, maybe uh, twice as many of these audio clips next week. And then obviously we're going to have another great today's training and another great learning tree uh, on the next one as well. I want to thank everybody for riding with us again today. As always, uh, please take care of yourselves out there and others, and uh, may God bless us all. God bless you too, Ron. This is David Summers thanking you for being with us and reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.